you're listening to the Primary Medicine Podcast with Kevin and Dimitri, bringing you the best in primary care CME that you can use in your everyday practice. Welcome back, everyone, to the Primary Medicine Podcast, and it's our 49th episode. 49th episode. That, that's pretty crazy. Pretty excited. And actually, episode 50 is a special episode. Kevin had a, a nice chat with a special guest. And uh, that's coming up in a month's time. But now we have Kevin coming back, and he'll be talking to us about syncope. I have to say, I I don't want to hype this talk too much, but Kevin actually taught me about syncope in residency, and and his method works great. I used to be intimidated by this topic. Now, when I have somebody coming with syncope, I'm no longer intimidated. I know what to do. So I'm quite excited to see the update of the talk, uh, I guess, five years later. So, Kevin... If you can uh, go ahead and uh, give us uh, give us your approach to syncope. Well, Dimitri, I'm so glad you played me up as being very good at this topic because today of all days, I have my youngest of four children, my 15-month-old daughter, who's sitting on my lap helping me. And for those of you with kids, you can imagine just how much help a 15-month-old has to offer. And she touches the keyboard, yells into the phone or my earpiece, and uh, grabs the mouse. So... We're going to do it, and it's going to be good. So what we're going to cover today is the approach to syncope. What I'm not going to cover in great detail is the differential diagnosis of syncope, like that giant, giant list. If you just Google that or look it up on UpToDate, you'll find that that list is enormous. And we are obviously covering the differential, but not in an enormous amount of detail here. The other thing that we're not going to get into a lot of is any form of treatment for specific causes of syncope. So this is your approach. And what I really want to focus on is the history, the physical, the key differential, not the extensive differential that you send to people like my wife, a pediatric neurologist, or you send to an electrophysiologist. Talking about the differential that we as frontline physicians need to be able to have in our heads. The other thing that I want to emphasize is that this is such a crucial, crucial topic to know very well in our day-to-day practice. I have a lot of sympathy for my colleagues that are in primary care because I know these people walk in um, to your clinic and you always worry, do they have something imminently disastrous on the horizon and and do you need to send them to emerge or get them in with a a consultant urgently? Nonetheless, uh, let's go through it. And as I said, I'm going to have my little one helping me the whole way through. The first thing to emphasize when you are taking the history and doing a physical examination in a patient who has syncope is understanding what the definition of syncope is. And now I'm not going to go through the big textbook definitions, but the key or the working sort of way to imagine syncope is a transient um, loss of consciousness. And there, you know, there's some difference of opinion as to whether that's being full out or being less aware. And again, some definitions, uh, a prompt return of consciousness, which again, I'd probably de-emphasize for this. So the bottom line is a syncopal episode is some event where the patient is not all there. When you are approaching it, you want to let your differential diagnosis guide you. So I'm actually going to go through my own approach, um, the bedside, which is I sit down and I get them and whoever witnessed it to take me through exactly what happened. So what time did this occur at? What were you doing before, during, and after the event? And I really push them. 
oh, I got up to go to the bathroom in the middle of the night. No, no, no. What time do you think it was at? How far did you make it? What happened? And then what do you remember occurring right before you passed out? And then during the event, I always like to push them. Do you remember anything from it? Because that's reassuring if they have some recollection of the event. Or what did the witness see? I mean, obviously, if the witness saw the patient having a generalized tonic-clonic seizure and, and wet themselves, that's going to really help you go down the, the path of working them up for a seizure. And then obviously, you want to find out what happened afterwards. Did you promptly return to your baseline? Were you awake, alert? Were you groggy for 30 minutes? Were you groggy for an hour? Do you even, how long were you out for? So I really, really push them on that. The other, um, the other key component of my assessment of syncope patient is proving to myself that it is not a vasovagal event. Because I think we're always tempted, especially in young, healthy people who collapse, to just go vasovagal event. And we just want to make it straightforward, easy for us, easy for the patient, and just reassure them. But I actually really try to prove to myself that it's something else. And to do that, I go through my differential very extensively and I ask them all questions related to that. And I do a full physical examination because although I may be suspecting it's a vasovagal event, we're going to go into a little bit of detail as to what exactly one of those is. But I really actually try to prove to myself that they're not bleeding in their head, that they haven't had a cardiac event, they don't have a pulmonary embolism. Oh, this is my daughter talking into the phone right now, um, looking at pictures of herself. And the other thing I try to do is positively affirm that it's a vasovagal event by getting those historical and physical exam features that suggest it, as well as proving that it is not something more sinister. So let's go through my approach. This Everyone's got a, a different sort of approach or, or way they like to do this, but I actually just like to go literally head to toe. So once I've gotten their story... So once I've gotten them to tell me my best recollection, oh yeah, on top of it, my daughter's uh, sick. She had croup last night, but it looks like she settled out today to just the standard cough. So what I'd like to do um, with my patients is get them to tell me the whole story, but then after they tell me the story, we go through a comprehensive review of systems. And I'm just going to, for the sake of the podcast, pair it with the physical examination. But in, um, in terms of head to toe, we'll start at the head or brain things. And again, I keep it really simple. Brain things. Dimitri, what would be some things on your differential diagnosis that are intracranial, specifically intraaxial neurologic events um, that might cause a person to have a syncopal episode? I mean, you worry about stroke, but from what I understand, that's a syncopal episode is not a common presentation of stroke. You might think about something that affects the, the cerebellum, such as vertebral basilar insufficiency. That, that, that's, that's been my understanding of it. Uh, yeah. Seizures as well, obviously. Excellent. Yeah. So a lot of people tend to worry, patients, um, other healthcare providers tend to worry about stroke as a cause of syncope. Or syncope is a very uncommon presenting symptom for a stroke. If you are having a stroke, you're having a massive stroke, usually a basilar territory stroke that knocks out your reticular activating center. Bottom line is very unusual for somebody to drop because they had an ischemic stroke, okay? Because consciousness is regulated by so many places of the brain, it's hard to knock them all out at once without it being a major blood supply issue like a cardiac event or 
Seizure, um, you alluded to, that's a big, big one on your differential. And I try to tell myself, again, playing that cognitive game that I do, try to tell myself that this patient had a seizure and then prove through careful history and physical examination that no, they did not in fact have a seizure. Because that's a very common cause and it's something that can be subtler than we think. It's obvious when they you know, have a generalized tonic-clonic event in the grocery store and then everybody sees it and, it and it's clearly what's happened. It's less obvious when they have an absence event or on the couch or you know partial complex or something like that. So I, I push myself to take that history very carefully. One other key head thing you really don't want to miss is a subarachnoid hemorrhage. So patients remember that when they pass out, they frequently bump their head on the ground or a piece of furniture. And so if your patient bumps their head, they'll have a headache. But what you really need to find out is, did you have a headache before you collapsed? So one thing that I I really emphasize to patients is tell me whether you had a headache before all this happened. Because if they tell me they had a thunderclap headache or really severe, really unusual headache, and then they collapsed, I'm very worried about that. And that's actually a significant presentation. So I um, emphasize taking that careful history for a subarachnoid hemorrhage. So I actually had a patient um, who had a presentation like this. She was a migraineur, came in via EMS, and said she was having a headache, she wanted treatment. But she says that she was gardening when it occurred, and she felt her headache and collapsed. And um, she didn't. She was kind of, you know, stooped over while she was gardening, and uh, she actually had soil on her face and a little bit of an abrasion. And sure enough, I did the CAT scan, and it showed a massive subarachnoid hemorrhage. Another thing to consider is a subclavian steel, which is a positional kind of syncopal episode. And again, this often is worked up as an inpatient um, on a cardiology uh, unit, but. Um, what you really want to focus on as well is the possibility of a dissection, either vertebral uh, artery dissection or uh, aortic dissection um, that's tracking upwards. And sometimes people don't have a full loss of consciousness as a result of painful events, but they'll often collapse and have this sort of transient altered level of consciousness due to severe pain. And then as they recover, um, it's clear that it wasn't you know, a full loss of consciousness. <laughs> So the um, key symptoms to focus on in the head is headache, any kind of focal neurological complaints, speech swallowing, walking, talking, vision, gait, anything along those lines, difficulty swallowing that are going to tip you off to an intracranial event. Seizure activity is another um, key thing you want to ask about, not just um, arm twitching, but eye deviation, um, repetitive lip or oral movements, as well as uh, urinary incontinence or uh, tongue biting. You also want to ask them about vertigo, not so much that, you know, vertigo itself can uh, cause syncope, but uh, it may be associated with the event or it may cause them to feel this profound, you know, sense like they're going to pass out. And and I've seen it occasionally, somebody with a severe, very sudden onset of peripheral vertigo will actually uh, collapse as a result of that. And then also, like I mentioned earlier, uh, any kind of tearing, ripping neck or back pain, you want to think dissection or anything where they're passing out from a head position or turning, you want to want you want to worry about subclavian steel or you know other uh, carotid insufficiencies. Now moving on to the physical examination of things that when you're worried about things in the head and neck, you want to do obviously a full head and neck examination. You know, examine their uh, pulses of their neck. Um, not that that's very high yield, but have a look around. You know, make sure they're nice and supple because they can have meningitis. Meningitis, God, I'm screwing up that word. Neck stiffness uh, from subarachnoid hemorrhage. 
And then you obviously want to do a full neurological examination because if there's anything focal or you're getting something funky from the history, you need to follow that up with a CT head. So I've got a low threshold to order a CT head in anybody with um, a syncopal episode and either abnormal history or abnormal physical exam findings. But you do not have to do it as a routine if there's nothing to indicate a neurologic cause or an intracranial bleed or anything like that, that a CT head's going to show you what's going on. So I just, like I said, I kind of move from head to toe. And so moving down into the chest, I let that differential diagnosis um, guide me. Now, there's always the classic chest pain things, you know, PE, pneumothorax with tension physiology, pericardial tamponade, um, acute coronary syndrome or an aortic dissection. Um, to be frank, you know, those in and of themselves are not typical causes except for possibly pulmonary embolism of cardiogenic syncope. What we worry about more are things like arrhythmias, torsade, brugada, wolf parkinson white, or, you know, ischemia, I suppose. And then you also worry about structural cardiac things, particularly in the young as well as the old. Uh, people have made it into their 30s and 40s, we tend to worry a little bit less about, but certainly like young people can have cardiomyopathies. We always hear about young athletes who pass out um, on the field, have a cardiac arrest and die. Valvular causes young people and old people, but old people, big, big one you got to watch out for is aortic sten stenosis. And so moving on, what symptoms are going to be key when you're asking about this patient who's passed out? Dimitri, do you want to list some? Sure. Yeah. Your, your differential is, uh, is, uh, is sort of guiding the questions you're asking here, but you know, if you're worried about heart problems, I think you mentioned like palpitations, presyncope, even chest pain, things like that. Shortness of breath, cough. Other big ones I put a lot of emphasis on when I'm thinking about that cardiac aspect of the differential is exercise tolerance. So I get really worried when a young person tells me, yeah, I passed out a couple of times on the treadmill or I, you know, don't tolerate exercise. I feel really lightheaded during the exercise itself. It's not unusual for people to feel a little bit lightheaded after they're pushing some heavy weight on a bench or went for a brisk run and they stop and they start feeling a little bit lightheaded. That's less worrisome than actually feeling pre-syncable or having a syncable episode during the activity. And again, similarly for old people, if last week you were able to walk up your flight of stairs with no problems and this week you're telling me you're having trouble, you're feeling short of breath or lightheaded as you go up your usual set of stairs, that worries me a lot. So a functional decline also points towards a, a serious underlying um, cardiac cause. And um, so just to reiterate the symptoms that patients may report to you and that you need to ask about is chest pain, shortness of breath, palpitations, syncope or presyncope, and then uh, any cough associated with it. And then any history of pulmonary embolism or hemoptysis or anything else um, or risk factors for a PE that would also make you worry about something within the chest that's causing its patient to feel syncopal or, or presyncopal. Moving on to the physical examination, I do a full uh, set of vitals. I listen to the heart, lungs, examine the legs for signs of uh, not only edema, but also asymmetry to suggest the DVT. I make sure pulse in all four limbs are good. Um, so you're less worried about an aortic dissection. And of course, I do an EKG. And I consider the EKG an extension of the physical examination. Everybody who presents with any kind of altered LOC 
whether you think it's neurologic or whatnot, cardiogenic or something in the abdomen, you need to be doing an EKG. You need to be able to get it quite quickly. But in a lot of cases, uh, you need to do some fairly specific workups for cardiogenic cause. So obviously, if it's, you know, an acute coronary syndrome or ischemic event um, that you're worried about, you need to do troponins. And if it's a pulmonary embolism, you're either going to start with a D-dimer or you're going to go right to CTPE study for that diagnosis. But then where it gets sticky is if they have a normal EKG, but a bad story for something cardiac, then you really have to pick up the phone and speak to a cardiologist because you're looking at admitting this patient to a monitored bed and arranging usually for usually for an urgent inpatient echocardiogram because so they're going to need to look for a structural cause of this patient's uh, presyncope, whether it's a cardiomyopathy or valvulopathy. That, that needs an echo. And it's funny because when I think about echoes, they're either something I leave up to the family doctor and I'll just send my patient's family doctor a note saying, I heard a murmur. Uh, this patient might need an echo in the next uh, few weeks. It's not associated with any uh, abnormal symptoms. Or I'm worried enough that I'm speaking to a cardiologist and I'm getting that patient admitted and a cardiologist can be the one to do the echo. So it's pretty infrequent that we just sort of send patients out the door with concerning symptoms who get an echo in the next week or so uh, because they really ought to be evaluated by a cardiologist when we're when we're quite worried. And then obviously there's more elaborate provocative, you know, electrophysiologic testing and stuff that um, again downstream even your general cardiologist often won't do. So to summarize um, causes of syncope in the chest, this is where your scariest diagnoses are going to lie and where you've got to have a low threshold to do investigations, but a low threshold to pick up the phone and speak to a consultant to manage these patients. Now, for those that are in clinic or an outpatient setting, again, this is where you're going to call the emergency doctor on call and just say, hey, I think this patient needs to be brought in for an urgent uh, EKG and workup. I mean, if you've got a good relationship with you know, your cardiologist and you're in a smaller center, you know that might be another option. But often, um, at least in my experience, is our local cardiologists want their merge to rule out big things like dissection or pulmonary embolism before they'll admit them to a cardiac ward. Now, as if it couldn't get any longer, syncope continues into the abdomen. So once you're satisfied that you're not looking at, you know, something to do with the heart or the lungs, pulmonary embolism or what have you in the chest, next you move down towards the abdomen. And in the abdomen, there aren't a ton of things that will cause you to have a true kind of syncopal event. It's not unusual to have pain in the abdomen that can be sudden and severe and cause you to collapse. Um, But the really worrisome stuff, um, that list is not as extensive as, say, a cardiogenic or uh, intracranial cause. The bottom line is is that in the stomach, one of the big ones you have to watch out for is an acute aortic event like a ruptured uh, abdominal aortic aneurysm or dissection of the abdominal aorta or a dissection and rupture. And these... You know, presentations and exam findings can be anything from totally obvious that the medical student goes, I think this person's having a rupture AAA to something subtle where you may notice nothing abnormal, but the history is suggestive of it. And your physical exam is normal and you work them up for 
rupture AAA, and sure enough, you find something retroperitoneal that so far is contained, but is obviously life-threatening if it's not uh, dealt with immediately. Another big one um, that's worth emphasizing and talking about in some detail is upper GI bleeds. So remember that a hemoglobin as a screening test is not that good um, when you're worried about GI bleed as a cause of syncope or whenever you're working up somebody for a GI bleed, simply because, and I've gotten into this discussion with the on-call transfusion doctor when I'm trying to order stat blood, is that hemoglobin is a measure of concentration. So if you suddenly bleed one liter of your blood volume into your stomach, for instance, through you know peptic ulcer or a, a, varice, a gastric varicine, then what you're really going to have is you're going to have a syncopal event related to a vasovagal sort of component where it's this noxious stimulus and the person passes out. But then the syncope that follows is related to blood loss. But acutely, you won't necessarily see a drop in the hemoglobin. Also scary is you may not find that they have an abnormal digital rectal examination. So you might not find positive fecal occult blood or melina when you do the DRE, and that's unusual, uh, but it's still a possibility. Um, so what I'm getting at is you want to thoroughly reassess your patients whenever they come in with abdominal pain and syncope. But uh, you do, as a standard of care, need to get the hemoglobin, but you also do need to get uh, a digital rectal examination looking for frank melina or hematochesia as a cause of uh, their syncope, so an upper GI bleed. Lower GI bleeds are less likely to be life-threatening and concerning, but certainly if the patient's anticoagulated, um, that can be an issue, or if they've recently had a colonoscopy and polypectomies or something like that, um, where they might bleed more briskly. There are other, other subtler things like AVMs of the bowel or an eroding abdominal aortic aneurysm that uh, goes into the bowel and then they start getting these bliss breeders but kind of regardless it's all a common pathway so does that cover the abdomen Dimitri do you have any questions along there no and I'm actually glad you mentioned the abdomen because it often gets forgotten as a differential for syncope I had a really good uh, case in residency when I was at Hamilton doing emergency medicine is I had this woman who who passed out and she was a drinker Older woman in her 60s, she drank alcohol, could smell the alcohol on her and be very tempting to say, oh, it's just from that. But I asked her the whole review systems and she remarked on having like a black bowel movement. I thought that was a little bit odd. You know, sometimes people take Pepto-Bismol or sometimes what they mean by black is actually dark brown. But nonetheless, I did the digital rectal examination and sure enough, she was having an upper GI bleed related to peptic ulcer disease. And I immediately consulted GI who scoped her right there in the eMERGE. Again, that would have been a great example of how easy it is to miss on these subtle presentations. So moving down lower than the abdomen, particularly in females, you're worried about number one, number one, number one. And any young woman who is pre-syncopal or syncopal, you have to rule out pregnancy. The big one that we worry about is an ectopic pregnancy because that can cause life-threatening bleeding. It can be subtle. And remember that if they're bleeding within the peritoneum, you're, you may not have any vaginal bleeding whatsoever. So close review of systems. And it never is good enough to ask a woman um, if they think they're pregnant or not. The only time I don't test for pregnancy is if, is if a woman is over 50 or she's had a hysterectomy. And if there's any doubt whatsoever, I just go ahead and get a PDHG on that patient. Other, you know, less serious causes would be a normal intrauterine pregnancy can start to change the hemodynamics in young women and cause them to feel 
uh, pre-syncable or half-syncable episodes, um, and that's usually related to a vasovagal thing. That's less concerning than ectopic pregnancy. And then lastly, in the pelvis of a female, do worry uh, with sudden collapse and pain about the you know, ovarian torsion, which again, um, is obviously not life-threatening, but um, can be devastating to a young woman in that it affects her fertility. So to review abdominal and, and you know pelvic pathology, the history you need to get is, are you having abdominal pain, back pain, flank pain, some kind of pain below the chest? Is there any hematemesis, hematochesia, or melina? Are you having any, is it, if it's female, is there any vaginal bleeding associated with that as well? So we've kind of covered, there's nothing really in the legs um, that I'm going to worry about too much um, that can cause syncope, uh, obviously DVT being one, but uh, we should move more broadly to that big catch-all thing that I like to call toxicologic slash metabolic causes of a patient to have syncope. And this differential is enormous. Think of illicit drugs, so everything from, you know, popping fentanyl to injecting stuff, prescribed medications where, you know, you take too much of your beta blocker and you will pass out. You take too much of your calcium channel blocker and you will pass out. You can have too much NSAID and have an upper GI bleed. So you appreciate there's a lot of overlap here, right? And remember that things can be accidental or deliberate when it comes to ingestions. And in addition to obviously just checking off a full panel of blood work when you're suspicious about these sorts of things, uh, you also want to specifically add alcohol and tox levels uh, or levels of acetaminophen, ASA, as well as serum osmolality, full panel of electrolytes, but also go ahead and um, get that EKG because remember, EKG can often demonstrate abnormalities related to electrolytes or toxicologic ingestions. So again, so, so important to get that EKG. It's a lot more than just cardiogenic stuff. I mean, even intracranial things like subarachnoid hemorrhage will show up occasionally on EKG. And I'm not getting into all of the detail of that. So for tox slash metabolic, if you think there's been some kind of ingestion there, either deliberate or accidental, or you think there's something going on where they could have an electrolyte abnormality, they're on, you know, a new diuretic, um, they've got a history of renal failure, whatever have you, just go ahead and order that whole panel of blood work. So moving on, I want to pause here for a second and highlight that there's a lot of overlap between conditions. And so even though it may be obvious that we're looking at, let's say, a GI bleed or whatever, I will often still go and do the full review systems to make sure there's not something else gone on here or that there isn't a cardiogenic thing, right? So, you know, for instance, if you have somebody with bad coronary artery disease and they start having a massive GI bleed, they will get chest pain and they will get a bump in their trope. I had a guy like that just a few months ago, right? So his primary issue was not ischemia, even though he had an abnormal EKG and bump in his troponin, his primary issue was the fact that he was pooping blood for three days and his hemoglobin was very low and dropping. So appreciate that that copathology often intermingles and there's just no substitution for you as the clinician being thorough because your GI doctors are not going to be thrilled if this patient has a big uh, type 2 MI or worse on their service. So, or And likewise, the cardiologists can't really do much for a type 2 MI if there's an undiagnosed GI bleed there. So 
Yeah, and actually in that guy's case, I do believe his presenting complaint was not GI stuff. It was actually chest pain, shortness of breath, and decreased exercise tolerance. But when I pushed further, I found out he was actually having Molina stools. Again, be thorough. Moving on to the vasovagal. This is like the big one. It's the most common thing. There's a lot of subcategories. There's different names for it. Neurocardiogenic, vasovagal. There's, you know, subcategories of micturition syncope, straining syncope, cough syncope. I tend not to worry about all of those. I tend to focus more on making sure it's not something life-threatening or serious. It can be extremely frustrating to have vasovagal events, um, but they are, by and large, pretty benign compared to some of the other things that are out there. Often, they're prodromal. And what I'm getting at is if you push the patient, they'll say, oh, I passed out. I, I, no, no, tell me what exactly happened. I was dizzy. No, no, tell me what that meant. Use other words besides dizzy. And they'll say, I felt lightheaded. I stood up. I started to get sweaty or felt clammy or felt flushed. I started seeing tunnel vision. Things were blacking out. These are all what I'd call reassuring signs of a prodromal event. And then they passed out. And then how did you exactly pass out? Well, I didn't quite hit the ground. I kind of felt myself going down and I sort of, you know, put my hand out or I, you know, somebody was able to catch me. That's more reassuring than I dropped like a sack of potatoes. And then likewise, they usually come to pretty quickly. Um, it's rare for tongue biting. Sometimes you can have some myoclonic jerking. It's not true seizure activity, but they usually come back quite quickly as opposed to seizures, which may have a postictal period of a half hour or longer. Another big one is, so when, when you're thinking it's vasovagal, they should have those pre-dromal, prodromal symptoms. If they don't, you are truthfully worried about other things. And remember, again, that there's a lot of overlap here. So you can have a GI bleed and be prodromal, right? It will contribute, like I, I said earlier, it will contribute to uh, this uh, vasovagal phenomena. Okay, so they overlap a lot. Another big one that emphasize is the ruling in or the high-risk features. So even if I don't have an obvious cause, if somebody's got high-risk features, um, that's enough for me to pick up the phone and speak to a specialist. So the big, big ones that I emphasize are exertional syncope. So old people who are passing out when they're going their usual distances or are challenging themselves. Young people, likewise, who are exercising and pass out. Abnormal vital signs, I try to qualify that a little bit. Like everybody who comes in the eMERGE and is passing out and their families are worried, they're anxious, their heart rate's up. I tend not to worry about that. I worry more with persistently abnormal vital signs, disproportionately abnormal vital signs, so a heart rate that is way higher than anxiety would suggest or it's not coming down given fluids and it's still up or something along those lines. That's when I start working people up for causes, um, whether it's pulmonary embolism or, or GI bleed or what have you. Any abnormal findings on cardiac pulmonary neurological examination? I've talked about this earlier. If you hear a murmur in a young person who's passing out, that's a big red flag. That person needs to go in and be evaluated urgently. In the very least, I'd call a cardiologist to make sure that they're getting followed up within a week or so. Likewise, old people, if it's a murmur nobody knew about and you can't find an echo report accounting for that murmur, a recent echo report, then again, that needs to be followed up. Anything focal on neurological examination, you jump all over that with a CT head and you're speaking to a neurologist. Um, these are obviously, you know, very generalized approaches. There's, there is more to it than that. 
abnormal EKG, so anything that suggests an underlying arrhythmia or structural cardiac event uh, or structural cardiac cause or an intracranial event or something toxicologic or metabolic, that has to be investigated. And you do, in a lot of cases, have to speak to a specialist about that. Any history of structural cardiac disease. So somebody has a known cardiomyopathy and they're passing out. So a young person or an old person, so an old person who has an ischemic cardiomyopathy or a dilated cardiomyopathy and they start passing out, that's signs of progression of that structural cardiac disease and that needs to be evaluated as an inpatient. If they have signs of heart failure and they're passing out, again, they really need to be admitted and worked up. So they tell you, yeah, my legs have been swelling, I've been having trouble sleeping at night, orthopnea, PND, shortness of breath. Yeah, and now I'm passing out, that's concerning. And it's not just a matter of, quote, treating their heart failure, getting some fluid off and making them feel better from a respiratory perspective. It's about underlying causes of why they went into heart failure to cause those symptoms. Low blood pressure, systolic less than 90. Again, this is all taken with a grain of salt, young, thin Particularly females can often have low blood pressures, but persistently low or low and associated with symptoms is concerning. This is going to be controversial because I know everybody loves them. Specialists love them. ER doctors love them. Family doctors love them. Orthostatic vitals that are abnormal. Orthostatic vitals, in my opinion, have very little clinical utility. I don't use them in my practice. I listened to a great podcast a few years ago that basically just picked them to pieces um, but the risk with orthostatic vitals that are abnormal is you think it's an intravascular volume problem, you treat it, and you falsely reassure yourself when, in fact, they have a cardiogenic cause of their syncope or presyncope. Uh, and you can probably find lots of great stuff on the internet ranting about the, the poor utility of orthostatic vitals. I can tell you that I haven't put enough art lines in old people that there's a big discrepancy between um, non-invasive blood pressure cuffs and what's actually going on at the arterial level with an art line um, to tell you that uh, I don't really rely on um, orthostatic vitals or, or blood pressures to tell you exactly what's going on from a, a perfusion perspective. Shortness of breath um, during the event or during evaluation, again, that's when you start worrying about things like pulmonary embolism, underlying structural cardiac causes, all big reasons to go looking further for the cause of their syncope or presyncope. Low hemoglobin, that's a given. Whether it's an acute GI bleed or somebody who's compensating, but yeah, hemoglobin less than 50, you definitely need to be all over that. But even, you know, 70, 80, 90, depending on what their underlying cardiac risk factors are, um, they may need to be brought in and not transfused as an outpatient. Old people who pass out is another big, big feature that you need to worry about. Same with family history of sudden cardiac death. So, if people report, and I often, you know, family history for coronary artery disease is kind of more your immediate family. Um, when I'm thinking about, you know, cardiogenic or rhythmic things um, in young people, I tend to broaden that. So, you know, cousins, uncles, aunts, anyone you might be related to by blood passed out at young ages or had a cardiac arrest at a young age or an unexplained death, drowning, right? If you have a cardiac arrest while you're swimming in the lake, you probably... Drowning wasn't your issue so much as not having a pulse because you do, quote, drown. But um, the other big one I put a lot of emphasis on, I alluded to this earlier, is facial trauma. So somebody, when they pass out, if they did nothing to protect their face and they actually smacked their face or hit their head on something, 
tends to tell me that it was a the real deal kind of event as opposed to more of that vasovagal like feeling where they felt lightheaded but they managed to sort of get themselves low or somebody caught them because it was happening slowly enough but if you went out like hope you could hear me snapping my fingers if you went out like that like a light switch and went down and hit the ground and bumped your face cut your face broke a bone um, that makes me worried about something intracranial cardiogenic or you know like i said big gi thing going on so let me wrap this up. This is a big, big topic and regrettably one that was helped or not so helped by my little one, my youngest little one. But bottom line is, is that this is a big topic. You need to have a systematic approach. Remember that pathologies often co-mingle. If you just get that feeling in the back of your head or that feeling in your gut that says, something's off with this patient's presentation, Some, I don't like the story, that's enough of a reason to pick up the phone and either call an eMERGE doc or call a consultant to get this patient evaluated by a second set of eyes or maybe some you know, inpatient workup or eMERGE department workup. I'd also emphasize um, that this is a topic that you need to sit down and take your time on. I know we're all pressured in eMERGE, pressured in clinic to see patients quickly. This is where you can miss something critical in a young person or an older person, anyone that can be devastating. So really take the time to do that thorough history, do that thorough physical examination. And often my patients, I will get the blood work going on them, get an EKG ordered. And then when I have the proper time, when I've quieted down on my shift to just sit down with them and get them to tell me the whole story so that I'm not missing something subtle, but crucial to making the diagnosis. And then lastly, Prove to yourself that it's not something bad. Walk into the room about to see the patient and by default, assume that they have a serious cause for their syncope and then work backwards to systematically rule out those serious causes rather than walking in, reading the note from the nurse or whatever and going, okay, this is probably vasovagal. I'm just going to get through this really quickly and get on to the next patient because that's where you miss the subtle diagnosis because we don't need doctors for when it's obvious. When it's obvious, it's there right? You need a good doctor for when it's not obvious. And that's really where our training and our acumen comes in and where we really save lives is when it's, when it's that subtle presentation. So walk in there and try to prove to yourself that it's not that big list of things rather than try to, you know, fit them nicely into the box of, box of a basal episode. Any questions at all, Dimitri? Anything you want me to go over? I know this is a big topic. Uh, ah, you know, but I like it. It's important. We see it all the time. I'd like to follow it up maybe with some, go through some of those specific diagnoses, but do tell me what your thoughts are. I mean, nothing to add. I, I actually like the fact that you said that an EKG is, is almost like a part of the vitals for a syncope episode. Absolutely. 100%. And I always order it. Always, even if I'm almost sure it's uh, it's a vasovagal, I'll order it because uh, you yeah, can catch it, something. It tells you so so much, and then the only other piece of material information you need is the beta HCG would be another very big, very big one as well. Exactly, and I, I'll just finish off. But yeah, I think that I really like that you mentioned is you have to prove to yourself it's not vasovagal. That's that's what I like to do. Um, and and I had a case where exactly where, you know, I was trying to prove that and I couldn't. <laughs> so I went digging further and I you, found something. You go digging. Else. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. You go digging or yeah. you pick up the phone. And often my consultants will be like, well, you're not giving me much. But I, I tell them, I said, the obvious ones went home. 
That's what I tell my consultants. They say, well, this isn't clearly seizure activity or this isn't clearly chronogenic. They say, I know, but I see vasovagal episodes all day long and I send them home. The reason I can't send this one home is because this one doesn't quite fit that box. And that's good enough to to ask for for a consultant to look at your patient. Exactly. Uh, It's it's that little feeling in the back of your head. And you know what? I don't care if if it all comes to nothing and the patient's found to have no concerns. That's fine. But all it takes is one miss over your career to have enormous regret about that or one great pickup to be so proud about why you're systematic in your history and physical examination and your clinical approach. Kevin, that was, uh, that was excellent. Thank you so much uh, for, for, your, uh, for your talk. And again, I'm excited about episode 50. You had a, an amazing guest coming in for the podcast. So yeah, look really out for that next month. Really yeah. All right. Well, take care. Cheers. Thank you.